Welcome everyone to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. When I set out to do this podcast, I wanted to talk to a wide range of people who make up this rainbow community we are part of. This is what we have done so far, from Jay the Singing Shaman, to Emmett Michael, to Ashley Cardinal, to Quinn Wade. The conversations have showcased the wide-ranging voices found within this 2S LGBTQIA community. It also became evident to me right away that as a community, we have not done a lot in compiling the stories of the people who we should consider the trailblazers, the people who went to work, rolled up their sleeves, and got stuff done. There are people within Calgary and Edmonton and in those communities who are doing the job of compiling that information, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, we're going to be doing the same. So Fred Dicker is someone who has done a lot for our community. The Imperial Sovereign Court of the Wild Rose, in fact, awarded him the John DeSmit Memorial Citizen Award in 1998 for his contributions. What are some of those contributions? Well, today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his involvement with the Pride Center in Edmonton, various Edmonton Pride Month committees, and his creation of the Bare Naked Boys Club. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, my special guest, Fred Dicker. Before I bring Fred to the screen though, I do need to mention that Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, is a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our community. By listening to our stories, your stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to connect with these amazing people and topics throughout 2022. This episode has been recorded live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, ums and ahs, button clicks, and other unexpected hijinks. It likely has happened or will happen throughout today's episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other audio platforms, please leave us some ratings, some comments. That helps our algorithms and make sure that your voices get out there. And if you're listening or watching here on YouTube, please press subscribe. You'll receive notifications for upcoming episodes. Again, thank you so much. This is a labor of love. It's all about making sure that you know about the fantastic people who have made our lives so much better. I am based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and it's important for me to say that as I would like to acknowledge that I am on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Saldo, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis and Inuits whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries, especially the knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who came before. I continue to open myself to listen, to learn, and to understand, and I hope you continue on this journey as we learn the truth. 
Without further ado, I would love to bring to your screen and to your listening ears today's guest, Fred Dicker. Welcome to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Thank you. Fred, you are someone who has had a very interesting background. From a previous conversation we had backstage, I learned that the coming out process for you came a little bit later than some others. For myself, I knew from an early age that I was different from the people around me. For yourself, when did you come to the realization that, ah, I am a gay man? Well, I'll focus on the term different first. I always kind of uh, felt myself somewhat different and, uh, well, unique. But as far as putting the, uh, pulling the dots together as to that I was a gay man, that happened sometime after my 40th birthday. I had ended the marriage with my wife, primarily because of financial abuse. I had enough, so I left. So I was sitting in, in one of the little houses I owned as I moved in there, and things just kind of started to come together. Something that happened at least 20 years earlier was I was sitting on a, a Saturday afternoon with three other guys and just for a place to connect and visit. And the driver was kind of 45 degrees turned to the right behind the wheel. And he had his leg propped up on the, the transmission hump. And I was just mesmerized by that visual of his uh, hairy leg, black better way of putting it. And for a long time, I had no idea what it was about, but I certainly remembered it affected me. I noticed that, but why it was a mystery yet. Then there's a few other things that come along that I can't really recall what they were, but that one night it all kind of just come together. And I says to myself, I'm a gay man, gonna move ahead as a gay man. I felt that I went from not knowing who I was to being totally comfortable with it overnight and got on with it. The first thing I did is uh, I was commanding officer of a cadet corps at the time and uh, something like that, the best defense tends to be a pretty good offense. So I very quickly came out to my office and my cadets and never experienced a moment of pushback about being gay. It was, oh, okay, he's, he's gay, uh, okay. What are we going to do now? And we just carried on. That was kind of part of my good offense. Put it out there. It stays that way and away you go. But at that time, realizing I was a gay man, I wanted to move to somewhere where there was gay life. I became connected with a leader in the uh, other community. And so when I moved to, uh, I moved in with him in his house because, well, I need a place to live and then this life went on. Some time later, we formally got married and we found that, well, we weren't the greatest, 
greatest at living together, but we were fine as a couple. So the last decade sort of thing is we were living separately. And then I don't have the exact date, but it ended quite recently and quite finally when he passed away. So didn't have to worry about completing the divorce that we were working on. It was done now. Although we were living apart, we were totally cordial. So, Fred, you went from being in the closet or not understanding, not realizing your true self to then moving to Edmonton and becoming involved in everything, especially in the organization of all the events that we've come to know and to love. And so how quickly was it that you began when I moved to Edmonton, I wanted to have something to, I had volunteer energies that I wanted to use. And I dropped into where I understood the office or whatever, the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Edmonton was. And it was later in the, in the evening. And I walked in and they had just finished a meeting, a board meeting and had decided the Gay and Lesbian Community Center was no more. They were just going to put it in a box. And, but a couple of board members started talking to me and we had a pretty good conversation. And then actually, before the evening was out, I was the chairman of the board, the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Edmonton, which was, I was in charge of nothing really, because it had deteriorated to being for various reasons, being nothing. And I moved on to find a better place to be physically and having things happen. And, and um, one of the most public things that happened for three consecutive years prior to that, the then mayor, Jan Reimer, and she had provided a, signed a proclamation when she was mayor for the center for for three years and then well now we had a new mayor so i sent a letter to the city hall and it went they have a system there to vent letters like that as to what to do with it and it went through all the hoops just fine and what was supposed to happen according to the way it was organized is i was granted the proclamation and it landed on the mayor's desk, and it was his job as designated to, well, it's been approved, it's done, and now you just sign it. Except he refused to sign it because he was a Catholic. Bill Smith was many things, and we can call him a jackass because he definitely was. So, yes, so we're talking about the 1990s, late 1990s here, Mayor Bill Smith in Edmonton. My way of thinking, and I did mention it, that, you know, okay, the mayor has a job. And that job has got a list of responsibilities and so on that he needs to do. And uh, one of them is to sign the uh, proclamations that the system that had been developed over quite a few years for that purpose. And it was just his job to do the rubber stamp thing and sign it. And that become a worldwide story that he refused to sign it. I had uh, a kind of a personal chuckle quite a while after that <clears throat> when somebody 
from Edmonton had been a tourist in Australia and discovered a major article in an Australian paper about the conflict and the mayor refusing to sign, etc. And it included a picture of me. So I was, well, I was out, really out. <laughs> Worldwide out. Yep. And uh, then as time moved on, names again, who was the next mayor? Stephen Mandel, that sound right? Yep, Stephen was next. He actually stepped up to run for mayor because the void that was there with the current mayor, something had to be done. And uh, over the years, Stephen and I become actually fairly close friends. So with the Jan Reimer years, with the proclamation being given, mentioning Pride, Edmonton supports our LGBTQ mm -hmm. community, followed by Bill Smith, where now the city does not support, and then to Stephen Mandel, to, who was a huge supporter of the community. What did you find as far as the community itself during these years? Did you go through the ebbs and flows of support? Did you feel the non-support? Or did you simply just battle through to get things done? Probably more of the latter. But as far as Bill Smith's behavior, it didn't really affect anything much at all. It was, oh, we've got a bozo for a mayor. And the uh, business community that worked hard to get him into the mayor's chair found that, well, they wanted a influence with the leader of the city so they could do things more conveniently and easier that, well, you can't do that with a guy who cannot carry on a conversation. And that was actually quite a shock. He couldn't put sentences together. He couldn't carry on a conversation. That's very true. So, yeah, the business community had worked to get a, well, a stuffed toy, for lack of a better word, in the mayor's office. And, and one of our senior city councillors, his experience was that... Uh, Anybody that wanted to talk to City Hall about anything, they just walked by the mayor's office and went down the hall to somebody they could actually talk to. So during the 1990s, when you're in charge, what is the name of what we now know as the Pride Center of Edmonton? What was it called in those days? Well, for none, I don't know how many years, but for quite a few years, Prior to my arriving on the scene, it was the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Edmonton, Kilke for short. And it had experienced over the years, organizations like that tend to, some good years and then some years that they use car guy language that the transmission just kind of slipped into neutral for a while and somebody figured out how to get it back gear and it would go some more. And one of the more significant things that come up is I knew that there had been pride parades in the past. So I checked around to see anybody, if anybody was, and I couldn't find anybody that was at least been interested in even raising an eyebrow about it. So I went to work and organized pride parades. And one of the more memorable ones 
is it rained that day? We basically left the spot and walked down a, a street and around and walked back. And Murray Billet was standing on watching and doing the one, two, three thing. And he counted 500 people involved. And also they were walking in close to six inches of water up the street to the finish line because it was raining that hard. But I perceived from just about everybody that, well, you know, we had a pride parade. We did this. Yes, it rained, but we did this. And I think in anybody looking back now is, yeah, we were soaked, but we were proud. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would imagine you were filled with so much pride being able to walk the street and be able to be your authentic self surrounded by so many people that you love and care for and, you know, a chosen family in so many different ways. The idea of a pride parade, what does it mean to you? There's being a member of the uh, queer community, gay community, whatever you word you use and throw the closet in there. It's really easy to be in the closet. So you can be thinking and running your life in quite a, a gay manner. Nobody notices because, well, nobody notices. But you have got to get out there and, and well, show your pride for any, any better way of putting it. And then, uh, Spin-off of that sort of thing is, I'm not doing it at the moment, but next year it's going to happen. And when I was on the acreage I was living on for the last two and a half years, I flew the pride flag. It could be seen from the road. I'm sure everybody in the neighborhood knew it was there. My landlady was totally fine with that. In fact, at uh, one point, it's fairly clear that it was torn or whatever. And uh, she was there with a new pride flag that she wanted me to put up. She wasn't so good at climbing ladders and stuff like that. And the big reason that I did that is to consider it the huge crime of our society is that the homeless people that are minors under the age of 18 are quite dramatically disproportionately gay. One of my best moments of listening to the radio, I've listened kind of like a real addiction to CBC radio since I was old enough to know how to turn on. And they were doing an interview, and I don't remember her name, but she was on Dragon's Den. And for those who don't know what Dragon's it is a series of, of fairly uh, accomplished business people that listen to proposals from presented to them, whether uh, you'd want to invest in their project and so on. And uh, something they did to kind of promote the show 
is she was the only woman involved, and there was four or five guys. But her and a couple guys spent a few nights on the streets of Toronto rubbing shoulders with whoever that was there. And she had a story that she was going to put out there. And the only way it wasn't going out there is if somebody in upper management yanked the plug out of the wall, bang, like that. It was coming out there. And the, the guy doing the interview, he was, no, she was telling her story and he was just going to shut up for a while. And she got to know a 14-year-old boy. He uh, had a, a racially mixed background, mm -hmm. so he had some, some color to him. But his parents were good business people, and he had been living in a upper middle class home in Toronto, Toronto neighborhood, up until a couple of days prior to that, when they found out that he was gay. And five minutes after they found out he was gay, he was on the street, homeless. And maybe part of being a woman, Part of being, I don't know whether she is a mother or not, but uh, a mother type mindset that this was just horrendous. That a, uh, a boy that most other people, you know, good looking boy, does well in school, you know, well behaved, good manners, etc., etc., and then they find out he's gay. And he's trash on the street corner with people. And, and that was one of my best uh, moments of listening to CBC radio because she took control of it. She had a story that she, she felt was very important to tell and she told it. Yeah. Arlene Dickinson would be that a dragon's den and Arlene has a background actually in Edmonton. For a brief uh, time, she was living in Edmonton and uh, she has residents in Calgary as well. In Edmonton, they've taken a look at and 40 to 45% of our unhoused kids are part of our rainbow community. So as you mentioned, very disproportionate considering, and a lot of it has to do with religion, the way that people are taught. It's terrible with what has happened throughout the years when it comes to our kids and them realizing that the blood family sucks and a chosen family is out there and you have to learn it in such a hard way. Fred, what are some of those milestones that you saw when it came to programming, when it came to your time running and organizing the Pride Centre? What are some of those standout moments for you? Well, I don't know whether it would be called a standout moment, the kind you're referring to, but it's a very, very standout moment for me personally. It was, as I recall, late morning, and I was in the Inglicky space, and it's important to appreciate that when you're chairman of the board, that means you're also janitor and whatever else comes along. And if the phone rings, you answer it and so on. But this gentleman that was 40 would be a good pig on his age. He walked in kind of timidly and he looked around and kind of 
appreciated that, oh, there's just the two of us here. There's nobody else here. And that allowed him to just kind of relax a bit. And then he started to talk about how he felt there was uh, probably nobody else like he was. And cross-dresser is probably the best term, but he, he felt that he needed to dress up as a woman occasionally and be out and about as a woman just to have balance in his life as to who he was. He was balancing his genetically male and male presentation with a feminine side. And then it got interesting because he was quite comfortable chatting about this, but he was chatting and such that he was sure he was the only one on the planet that did that. And then I says, well, once a month, there's a group that meets here. And I turned and waved my hand over to the Ricky meeting room there. Meets there once a month. And they, they go by the name of the Illusions Group. And there's maybe 20 guys there once a month. Just like you. And he was just blowing away. But just imagine going from thinking you're the only one on the planet that's got a heartbeat that works like that. To, there's a whole bunch of them over there. The only gay in the village to do Little Britain. And then realizing yeah. that there's a community. Uh, yeah. A community where you can talk out loud and be yourself. It's incredible. Uh, we've been talking a, a little bit about yourself. And Fred, you're mentioning some things. But we got to put you on a pedestal here as well. The Imperial Sovereign Court of the Wild Rose had noticed your contributions and in 1998 awarded you with Person of the Year. There's other awards that you've received due to your contributions. What do you think the Fred Dicker legacy will be when it comes to your contributions to the community? First of all, a little bit of background backup sort of information with a another very significant evening. Yes, the, the court, which are very active in, in uh, doing things for the community and so on, noticed that, well, things are getting done around Glicky now. And hence they recognized it. And according to the Constitution and so on, well, an organization like Clicky needs to have a annual board meeting, for lack of a better term. And there was 10 or 15, I can't recall if they're all guys or not, but 10 or 15 what you would call senior members of the queer community. Now, they had been part of the community and had been active doing things for probably decades. And they all come out to this board meeting to check me out because they heard that things were happening and they had to come and just, well, for lack of a better word, just, just check this guy out. 
And it was really reassuring to have that happen. And so I've done a lot of uh, groundwork in a few minutes there because, well, for doing things, I needed to have background information from, well, now I had a name for the face that I might be phoning. Now, another, and this took me really by surprise and is quite removed from what we have been talking about. But I was working full-time on my own funds because when I moved to Edmonton, I did have some real estate and whatnot to provide a bit of an income for me, but not much. So when the people went to Ottawa, to the Supreme Court in the Vreen decision, I stayed home because, well, everybody had to buy their own ticket there and back. But I mentioned to one or two people, certainly didn't get on the phone and phone everybody I could possibly think of. It's just, it was, but because I was uh, holding the fort in Edmonton at Galicky, I knew a flight number and I let the cat out of the bag. And I was at the airport at 10.30 at night, thinking that, you know, I'd be there when the people come back from Ottawa. But I don't know whether you were there. You'd remember it if you were. Well, for starters, Jim Brown was there. And he has his pride flag. You know, it's about eight feet wide and 50 feet long pride flag that he's used over the years. And it was strung up along the ceiling to greet them as they walked into the rival's lounge. And there was at least 100 people there. There was a really big crowd. And then at the appropriate time, they kind of all walked through. There's three or four actual doors there that you walk through and you pick a door and walk through. It. And it's just this a door into this from to the same space. And I'm going to use names here because uh, it was real. Murray Billet is a very dear friend of mine. And anybody that knows Mar uh, Murray is that Murray is, well, never short of words to say. <laughs> he, you know, he works talking to people and so on for a paycheck and he walked through and his jaw just kind of went slack and he was speechless. He was shocked. He was thrilled. He was blown away. But he didn't have any words right then for it. As everybody else was, it was just kind of, oh. And I think that was maybe one of the most significant actions that were really quite spontaneous. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon. They were going to be there, and they were, because, well, as we all know, the Vreen decision was a very big deal. Yeah. And to have everybody just kind of walk into the lounge in, in unison there, and there's everybody walking up. 1998 Delwyn Vreen case, Supreme Court of Canada ruled that we, the LGBTQ plus community, could not be fired from our jobs based on our sexuality. 1998, 
where we were in fear beforehand of being fired if people knew about ourselves, if we expressed ourselves and we could have easily been removed. Monumental case. And as you mentioned, Murray Billet, Murray Billet, as well as Ecamp, Edmonton City as a museum project has released a podcast talking about the Delwyn Vreen case. Murray talked on there extensively. So I do recommend that everybody checks out that podcast to learn more about the Delwyn Vreen case. Hey, Fred, you're downplaying your role a lot when it comes to our community here. I do want to ask you something when it comes to the Pride Parade and you mentioned the 500 people marching and over the years it grew. At one point people walked in the Pride Parade with paper bags over their heads because of the worry about being fired and being out there and slowly it built and built and built until a few years ago there would be 50,000 people in attendance, easily going down Jasper and White Avenue. It'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. A few years ago, there was the stoppage of the Pride Parade. There were activists who blocked the parade at the front and they announced their needs, their wants. Some people would say demands, depends on your lens on how you look at things. Being gay is political and you've had to get your hands dirty to get things done. And Shades of Color, Rare Canal did as well. From your lens and from the way that you looked at things, what are your thoughts about what took place that day? I can't remember what year it was in. Now I had a standing conflict with the Pride Parade and the rest of my life. The museum in Wetaskiwin, has an annual event called History Road, which is one of the biggest car shows of the season. And it just so happens that, well, the Pride Parade was ending up to be on the same weekend. So I was uh, juggling. I'd be at the parade one year, take my car and go to Potaskwin the next year. And the third year, I'd be back at the Pride Parade. And I was in Wetaskiwin that year when it was stopped. And a whole bunch of mixed emotions about that. I found that the behavior of the people involved was totally inappropriate, vigilante-type tactics, and you uh, don't necessarily get what you want by jumping on somebody and beating his face to a pulp. And that's kind of the way they were doing things. And I just really, really objected to that whole way they tackled it. And uh, how right I'm about this is a big part of that was had a Black Lives Matter component to it. Yeah, Black Lives Matter, they certainly do. And their organization is quite important. But to hijack the Pride Parade for their purposes, well, that's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot because we need each other, we need to work together, and that kind of tactics is just driving things apart. In retrospect, I consider it good fortune on my part that I was 
in Wetaskiwin, talking cars with people. You also mentioned, though, that you had mixed emotions. So it's that both sides type thing where, yes, disappointed with the actions that took that place that day, but there had to have been a part of yourself that went, well, they're building, they're making demands, but they're expressing themselves. And I would imagine that for yourself, you could identify in some way with these youths, these young adults who were making the proclamations that day that I would imagine you could see yourself a little bit in their shoes. Am I correct? I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, a big part of it was that I knew the chief, the guy that was the major leader of it quite well, because when his first days that he was on Canadian soil from immigration from Africa, well, he was living in my house. Mm. And, you know, I had a pretty good opinion of him and whatnot, and basically I had nothing to do with him after that because I just did not. Those vigilante, this is a war here, we're going to shoot everybody until the last man is standing, and that's the one that wins. No, just that was probably, in my mind at least, is the darkest days of, of gay history in Edmonton. It's in this conversation I've had with Liz, Messiah, she mentions over and over again with how there's this loss of communication, of people coming together and breaking bread with each other, getting to know each other. Do you have the similar viewpoint that this is part of the issue that was taking place that day is that people are not communicating with each other. People are antagonistic rather than coming together. Something that is mixed in here and exactly how is, is um, maybe another discussion. But the guy that was a major leader of the, the assault sort of thing. Yeah, back in Africa, because of the, the uh, political climate there, anything and everything they did, they had to do by literally swinging baseball bats. So he had that very out there, in your face, beat you up type of way of thinking. And it just, well, for me, it was just, well, it's time now. It's, I can reassemble. Well, let's bring this to something here and let's change the topic to something that it's a personal passion of yours that has built as long lasting. And that would be the Buck Naked Boys Club. So can you tell us more about this organization, how it came to be and the purpose of it all? Well, I can speak very considerable authority how it came to be because how it came to be, there was one person involved to being gay is one sort of thing. And well, the tendency to be a naturist is another part of personality that you inherit from your ancestors and, and you've got it or you don't. I've got a really interesting story here in a few minutes. <clears throat> but I appreciated that 
anybody that was wanting to go and be in a social setting, they had to go as a couple. As such, the major long-term established group was of a reputation that, well, if a guy went there, a single guy went there, they just uh, gone. If two guys showed up together, it was double gone. Now, whether they actually required to see a marriage certificate, but the only way you could participate is you had to be the stereotypical heterosexual couple, and that was it. And that was pretty common throughout, as far as I could tell. So somebody like myself, who wanted to be uh, involved in naturism, there was nowhere to go. So I created somewhere to go and organized uh, Buck Naked Boys, which I have labeled as Edmonton's Men's Naturism Club, as a kind of to describe that more than, than just Buck Naked Boys does. And it has been uh, very successful. We have been meeting with very few glitches and uh, very, very little pushback, problems, whatever. It's, it all just worked well and I have some very dear friends because of Buck Naked Boys and it's just a great social club for those who are involved. Personally, I live naked. So if you were to ring the doorbell on my house, unless I know who's there, I will not answer the doorbell naked, but just about anybody that's going to drop in for coffee, it's because I'm a naturist. I got to know them primarily because of Buck Naked Boys, and that's the way it is. I should make mention here for the people who are not watching us on YouTube, Fred is wearing a shirt. That's what I do know at the moment as well, just as our audio listeners are taking this in, this information in. I do want to make mention, I have up here on the screen for our YouTube uh, watchers, the Buck Naked Boys Club information can be found at www.bucknakedboysclub.ca. And information that is taken directly from them, that BNB is about letting your skin be as free as the day you were born and letting drop all of those expectations and walls we put up with clothing and possessions. And as was stated by them with the we, we are a loosely knit social group of adult men who share an interest in naturism slash nudism. Our first gathering was January, 1997 and we've been meeting regularly since then. We have no formal membership, bylaws or dues. Our focus is enjoyment of the freedom, pleasure and comfort of just being naked. We are not a club. We are young, old, gay, straight, tall, short, employed, retired and in school, etc. but all proudly naked men. I read a story that out at where a lot of festivities are held that there's really been no pushback and it's not a sex club. You know, need to make mention of that. It's nudism. I read somewhere where you had an encounter with a woman 
who was just driving onto the land and you had to basically remove her from the area. Do you recall this at all? Yeah, she drove into the parking lot in her Cadillac, like she owned the world. And she was going to, you know, she was checking out the facility for her, you know, whether she might want to use it is what she was doing. But most people would have the basic manners that when you can clearly see the car parking lot is full of vehicles and this is a, a private function and she just barges in like she is Queen of Sheba or whatever. So I saw her marching across the yard and I went up front of the house to greet her there and I just marched her back off the property and I wasn't particularly rude about it. I was just kind of in her face about it. And since I was naked, that has some significance. And I found that was a disgusting display of some of our other human beings because she just total lack of manners. And not to put down the brand Cadillac, but that was significant. That's what you drove up in. And then one of the mysteries of Buck Naked Boys, and I have, don't think I'll ever find out, is we had scheduled events there for around 10 years or more. August tended to be one of our better months year over year, and there could be 20, 30 guys there in August and so on. And then one August, there was nobody there. And I've been keeping my ears open to find out, and I haven't had a clue yet. And I doubt if I ever will. However, sometimes the darkest days are, are, are before the brightest dawn. And I become aware by whatever reason, there was a gay couple that had bought a uh, hotel retreat lodge type property west of Red Deer, about uh, close to an hour west of Red Deer towards Drayton Valley. And uh, they're a gay couple. And they were just starting out. And I got in contact with them. And we were reminiscing here a little while ago. And I think I missed one weekend out of 42 or 43. Four times a year, there's a naked weekend. And it is a wonderful relationship. It's great for their business. It's great for buck naked boys. And it's for somebody to attend a Lazy M weekend as our first naked event ever sort of thing, it would be just perfect because the openness, the friendliness, the classy, classy place, it's as good as any of the, the beds and the food are as good as you'd find at the best of hotels. And that's after our darkest day with Labyrinth Lake, went down the tube. As I say, I don't know what happened. And uh, Doug, the owner, is quite upset because we abandoned him. But that's the way it, the cookie crumbles, shall we?
What are some of the misconceptions when it comes to the club and nudism in general? I don't really have an answer on the tip of my tongue. The magic is, and this was back in the Labyrinth Lake days, so this was about 14 years ago, and it was just after uh, Saturday night dinner, and five guys just kind of collated in a very, not heated, but intense discussion. And I knew, because I pretty much knew who everybody was and who they were connected to and so on, these guys didn't know each other couple days earlier and they were sharing stuff with each other that you would just probably never even think of doing otherwise and what they had in common they were raising teenage kids and if you ever raised teenage kids it can be quite well interesting and they were just sharing all their stories and I'm sure that if there was a psychiatrist or, or a Liz Messiah sitting over in the corner listening to this, that tears would be running down their face because they'd be so awed and so jealous that all that openness that they do their all their work to pull out of people to get them to figure out their life, this was just bursting out of these guys. Mm. And it was free to burst out because, well, they were naked. Interesting. If you're lowering the walls, you're you're seeing each other's true self in so many different ways. And it's a testament to that the Bare Naked Boys Club has been around for 24 years. Of course, COVID and the pandemic has made changes to that the last few years for sure. But it's a testament that it's there and it's real and people can be involved. And I'm just going to bring up the website here on the screen again and just mention it to people if they want to learn more about it. Bare Naked Boys Club website, www.bucknakedboysclub.ca. We were mentioning before about pride parades and we had done a little bit of chatting before off screen and you made mention of a couple of very important moments that took place that at the pride events when people came and hugged you. Can you tell us a little bit about that and share that story with everybody? There's one hugging event that to me is stands out. I don't know whether you're really dressed going out where uh, or not but it was an awards event for the community where different people were getting uh, awards for being the most of this or the best at that or whatever and the winner was and i'll use her name karen hoffman those who know her know that she is a career medical doctor and she's transsexual and she was talking about working in a hospital during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the States and how she would go around after hours and, and the staff that delivered meals, for example, they would set the meal on the floor in front of the door of the AIDS patient when they knew that this age patient was sufficiently handicapped that he cannot get out of bed by himself, but they would not go in the room because he had AIDS. 
and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and it was, to me, it was very emotional. Mm -hmm. her, her talk. And then when she was finished, she walked slowly from one end of the hall through people to the other end of the hall. And I just uh, fell in step behind her. And when she was with her partner where she was headed, I just give her a huge hug. Karen Hoffman is one of my closest friends and her wife, Pam, their episodes are here on Tales of the 2SLGBTQ+. And Karen shares her story about growing up and transitioning, falling in love with Pam in the grades 10 and grade nine. And they've been together now for 60 years, been married for 53. And their story is the love story the love story that we all want to have, fighting through things. As you mentioned, the stories with AIDS, it has affected our community so much and we do not have people, we do not have elders within our community because they're no longer here. As Michael and Liz mentioned in a recent one, if you received the diagnosis that you were HIV positive or had AIDS in the 80s, you're not here today. You're just not here at all. Very few still. And we just have to remember where we've been. And that wasn't a long time ago. Not a long time ago at all. Fred, the hugs, everything. You moved to Edmonton in 1994. You were able to build the center of what we know today. This place where people are able to talk, share themselves, whether it's illusions, other groups as well. What you've done for the community in just being able to create space is just monumental and it's just special. And I know from just talking to you today, you pass on, you're passing on uh, credit for what you accomplished during those years. And that's the testament of who you are. You're just a man of Fewer words, but you get things done, you get to the point, and you just create space for people. And I ask you this because you have made the decision to move and live your life outside the city in a smaller area. And for a gay man like yourself in the rural areas of the province here today. I'll get back to you in a year. Okay. Uh, my New Year's resolution, I'm getting to a point now that well i can basically find things i have a lot of stuff in my garage and my tool supply and parts supply and part of living here is being a car guy i have i think it's 24 right now vehicles in my backyard wow and you can't do that in the city so that requires. But an upside too is that, back to Buck Naked Boys a bit, is I live on the edge of the town of Lamont and my kind of next door neighbor, you know, I can certainly look out the window and see there, there isn't a guy around that can take a baseball and throw it that far, but is one of the biggest auto wrecking yards in the planet. There is literally 
thousands of cars within a half mile. So the rural aspect of living is a car thing. It's working out quite well with a buck naked thing because I don't really have neighbors next door like you do if you live in a city lot. I have good neighbors across the road in the SO service station and convenience store, but it's sufficiently isolated that if anybody sees something that they really shouldn't, they were really going out of their way to see it. If the yard here has 15 or 20 naked men out and about walking around outside. And so my property is ideal for that. When you were talking about all the landmarks around, I grew up in rural Alberta, Botha, Stetler, Gadsby, which is east of Red Deer. And we do directions, not by street numbers or anything like that. It's always by landmarks. So as you're describing the places around you, Fred, I've never been to your place before, but I know exactly where you live. Just by <laughs> you mentioning where everything is. I know exactly where you live. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that I was going to bring up is a New Year's resolution of mine. And there is one name I've got that is familiar in Lamont here, but that's it. But I have drove around town a bit, and I have seen several pride flags in front room windows and that sort of thing. So I'm planning to just have a little card made up or whatever and just drive around and okay, this house has a uh, pride flag in the front window and I'll just put a note there that yeah, I'm now living in, in, in Lamont here and just wondering if we can connect to see how much queer community there is here. I'm just kind of searching it out. I don't know what'll happen. I've not got big expectations of it, but there could be actually a fairly, I wouldn't say vibrant, but there could be a significant queer community here. 15 or 20 people that know of each other or not. I love it. <laughs> Maybe each pride flag doesn't know who has the other one. I love in this conversation that even now you're still looking to build community and create safe space for everybody. And that's been your focus the entire time. And that's your legacy. That's what you've always done is building the safe space for everybody. In a previous conversation that we had with each other, you mentioned how someone at one of the pride parades burst through from the crowd and just hugged you for 10 minutes and just let the emotions yes. out. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that meant for him as well as yourself? I'll tell you quite a bit about him without his name, of course. And I know he no longer lives in the province. He grew up in Fort Vermilion. And when it comes to being an isolated community, that's about as isolated as you can get. And he was 15 years old. He had two younger brothers. And one night they were sitting down to the evening meal and something come over the radio or whatnot about gay something or whatever. But it prompted his father to say, 
Well, if I had a gay son, I would just kill him. That's something that kind of sends chills up your spine sort of thing, basically talking to you. And it is a very real situation in his, his world because he has a Middle Eastern background where family honor killing and stuff like that is part of their culture. So he appreciated his father, just wasn't making airwaves. He was dating. Now, for somebody to know exactly who they are at 15 is uh, maybe a blessing, but I don't think it's that common. But I could be wrong. But for sure, he kept his head down. Really careful. And just like another prominent member of our community that's famous for last day of school, heading out of Rocky Mountain House on the first Greyhound bus, he did the same out of Fort Vermeer. And he was employed in Edmonton at what some would call a dream job for a gay guy. He was working in a department store in the men's department. So his day's work was advising men how to look pretty. So his job situation was pretty good. He was alone. He didn't know anybody. He hadn't connected to the community in any way, shape, or form. And one night he found, stumbled upon my Sunday night group, of which there was probably at that time the high teens at least in the room when he discovered it of gay men. For him, quite a, quite a find. And he became a regular. And we just kind of nurtured him from being a very in-the-closet, scared gay boy to becoming a fairly uh, major organizer in the queer community of events. And, of course, a successful pride parade when it winds up in a place like Churchill Square downtown. All kinds of people around, and they're all kind of the same mindset. And he was just kind of swept away by his personal journey. And he looked up and saw me and grabbed me and hugged me and cried and hugged me some more. It was wonderful. Now, something just popped in my mind about the queer community that I think is something, too. It's got an age connection. And a number of years ago, and I don't know the exact date, but many do, is it was called the Great Alberta Campout. And it was about 300 of the queer community in Alberta would congregate there every year. And I had a pickup truck with a cap on it and a mattress in the back, and that's how I overnighted sort of thing. And others had tents, and there was those with big motor homes and et cetera, et cetera. In the middle of the afternoon, it was a very festive atmosphere. The figure I'm aware of, was, I think it would be accurate, it was 300 people there. Into silence, and everybody was walking around like they'd just been hit by a baseball bat upside the head, a stunned look, whatnot. And to see that transition, and how fast it went from one extreme to the other, and if you tell me exactly the date right now, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> 
But what happened? Why was why was there such a, a switch? Mercedes crashed into a post in Paris, and Diana was dead. She meant so much to the community, and all of a sudden, what she did when she touched the HIV/AIDS yes. men, and because it was the biohazard suits carrying people away when they had died. As you mentioned before about the food being left outside the door and Diana is there. Diana touched people and people saw it. Significant, significant actions. I can definitely understand how everybody would react. I remember that moment. I was in Stetler visiting my parents. I was in university at the time and I heard that on the TV and ran upstairs to tell my parents and that silence that you were talking about, we had that in the household as well. Nobody knew. Very significant. There's one thing as well, Fred, and I bring myself into this a little bit because I did struggle with being gay for the longest time. And it, I didn't really start living my authentic self until my late 20s. I knew I was gay early on, but I grew up and I graduated from high school during the AIDS epidemic years. And so I thought mm -hmm. if from rural mm -hmm. Alberta, not having information that if I announced to the world that I was gay, that automatically I would get AIDS and I would die because the only gay representation I saw was on the cover of People's Magazine, Rock Hudson, Freddie Mercury. And it was announced that they were gay just as they died. And so I thought, oh my gosh, if I say I'm gay, I'm going to die right away because, you know, knowledge, it just doesn't come there. It took me a while to be my authentic self, but there's something that you did with pride and helped people is that you created self-esteem workshops. And I sure wish that I knew about it at that time and was part of the group because that was so important. So can you tell us more about these self-esteem workshops that you created and ran as part of the center? Well, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna correct you. Perfect, I correct me, please. I did not create them. Oh, okay. Edward Sandberg, close friend of mine, was working for the AIDS Network, and he has a degree in psychology or university degree qualifications in the subject, and it was his baby that you cannot, or, or you're, you're beating your head against the wall if you're talking to gay men about safer sex practices when they do not have the personal self-esteem to make a decision. So when somebody wants to be with them and be unsafe, they can't say no. Yeah. So that was Edward's thing. And, and out of the AIDS network, there was uh, a set time. There was six and eight weeks that you could sign up for, that you'd attend once a week for to eight weeks. And there was 20 guys signed up and everybody would be there sort of thing. Where I picked up on that was that after the last day, guys were saying, what do we do now? And that's when I started my Sunday night group. 
at the at Glicky because, well, it was easy to do. I was chairman of the board and janitor of the space sort of thing. So if I wanted to use the space on a Sunday night to do something, well, I had a key to the door, which is very important because often when I was opening the door, there was somebody there in various stages of distress to really just really bad shape. And uh, that was the magic of Sunday night. They knew about Sunday night, they'd been there, and then something happened during the week. And they had to get back to Sunday night so they could talk to guys about it and be comforted and, and so on. And so I was opening the door and they were, yeah. Ready to rush in. Gosh, it would have saved me tons and <laughs> tons of emotional baggage to be able to share and uh, feel confident to be able to do that. And I know from talking to friends who were part of all of this, they all mentioned just how extremely helpful it was and where they found themselves. And hey, Fred takes a little bit of credit for that because you've definitely, as I mentioned before, created space. I would be remiss, and I know that there's people who are listening to this who would be like, Douglas, you have to ask this question. And this puts you a little bit on the spot here, Fred. And in our conversation, we've been talking about Bare Naked Boys Club. We've been talking about the support groups and they tend to be male focused. Where were women, the lesbians, the bisexual women in your life at this time? And can you tell more about your interactions with and the safe space that you were able to be part of when it comes to the women in our community? Part of it is I certainly knew of the women that were actively involved in the and on the women's side, but in the queer community with, you know, guys hang out with guys and women hang out with women so there's a natural divide there so it's one group is over there and one group is over there women did a lot of uh a lot of good organizing for community events if there was a, a big dance or something like that put on the chances are a lot of the power work was female and they did their their thing and there's a story that is very, I think, very good to bring out at this time for those who might be listening that aren't really that familiar with the queer community. There was a young lady who was probably 16, maybe a little older than that, and she appreciated who she was. And she'd been out and about a bit in the lesbian community so she connected with a few with a few girls and she had a few phone numbers and then one uh, evening or afternoon she come home from school and walked in the door of the house and her mother had a very direct question for her right in her face and as that is are you a lesbian and it was one of those cases that we talked 
kind of talked about earlier. She had a direct question from her mother and she was raised, if you get a direct question from your mother, you give a direct answer. And a couple minutes later, she was homeless. However, she had a stroke of luck in that she had some change in her pocket, a bunch of quarters sort of thing. This was a while ago. You had to have quarters because you used pay phones. There wasn't cell phones. Mm-hmm. And she had phone numbers. So the first thing she did is she started phoning some of the these numbers to relay her news that she was in this situation. And uh, this is a very gay story because the women all got together and organized. And this young lady, she would stay with this uh, lesbian couple for a month, going to school. She was in high school. Then she'd go to another couple who would look after her for a month or two, depending on. And they all organized to always make sure that she had a a good, safe roof over her head, and they took turns providing it. And this did not stop when she graduated from high school. It continued into university education. And it was huge that she had really, really good support and whatnot to go from a kind of a grade nine student that was really in bad way to a successful university graduate. And uh, to me, that's, that's the, the magic of our queer community. Yes, it is. Things like that happen in different areas, but in the queer community, it tends to be much more, we look after each other. It's a common story and we do, we take in people and as you mentioned, month by month and you find the safe space for the person for the next and you go from there and it's very, very common. I understand that she did reconcile with her mother quite a while after graduating from university. So she does have a relationship now with her mother. And her mother has learned quite a bit over the years. But the in-between time was shame on you, mother. But you can't really blame the mother because she'd grown up to be taught to behave that way. It takes a while to unlearn what you were taught before and to do things in a proper and correct way. It takes time and it takes some people a little bit longer to get there, but when they get there, we have to give grace and recognize that everybody's on a journey. And as long as we get to that train station, you know, it takes people a little bit longer, but as long as they get there. Fred, we're coming to the end of our time that we have with each other. And we've gone through this and we've gone through that. And there's a lot that we haven't discussed about as well. I put this out to you before, and I'm going to ask you this question again. Fred Dicker and his legacy. 
If you want to be remembered for anything, what is it that you want people to remember? That's a big question, and I will ponder it. It popped in my mind a special moment, a very significant moment, is I got a phone call from a couple of police officers. They wanted a coffee date. Well, you don't go for a coffee date with a couple of police officers. You go for an interrogation, but that's who they are. These two guys were the two guys that were the founding energy of the hate crimes unit in the Edmonton Police Service. Mm -hmm. And they had called me for advice. And one of them was a white guy, and the other one was a very attractive black guy. And I made, I think, a very significant point at that first meeting. And I said, if, if I walk into a room, nobody necessarily knows I'm gay. They might know me, they might know that I am gay, but just walking into the room, it's you know, some straight guys say they can, they can spot a gay guy walking a block away and so on. And we both know that's a lot of bullshit there. But yeah, I can walk into a room, nobody knows I'm gay. But Officer Higgins, you walk into a room and instantly everybody knows you're black. And from a discrimination point of view and living with discrimination and so on, that's a pretty significant difference. And I forgot a, a little piece of personal history that it was a few years ago now. And I was at Michael Fair's last Christmas house party, I think it was. But it was Michael Fair's house and I was there early, like I tend to be. And I look up and who walks in the door but Delwyn Green. And he looks up and across the room and he bounds across the room saying, I can't remember what your name is, but I sure know who you are. Whomp. And we had a nice visit that some people might know. Delwyn actually left the country after the decision. He had been forced you know, to live in a fishbowl for several years while the court decision and so on moved on. And he has lived in Paris, France for quite a few years. He was back in Edmonton because he was helping his mother because his father had died. Mm -hmm. And of course, his father was the one that accidentally outed him to the world in the front page of the Edmonton Journal, which started and just happened to be the perfect person to impersonate the, the problem with, with the discrimination. And then I mentioned earlier about my arithmetic in my head. And and then I went home and I did some checking too. And okay, because Dalwin was looking like a very attractive 30 year old. He was at least 50 then. He, he, he weathered very well. And that was a thrill to see as well. Because he had some tough years for the poster boy in the Canadian. Canadian North American news, he was 
the name and it's the Delwyn Vreen case. It's the first and last name of him and he got put through a lot and it, it took six, seven years for the case to go through the system before the eventual Supreme Court. So absolutely runs away. Fred, you've had a couple of minutes to ponder as you were mentioning and everything, you know, your legacy, your, with what you're known for, you know, I can suggest to you that you were the person busy behind the scenes, getting things done with quiet energy, moving things forward. And I liked when you mentioned about the car and being put things into neutral and jimmying it around to make sure that it gets into drive. And I think that's part of your legacy is that you were one of those people that found ways to put groups and movements into drive, things that were stuck in neutral and you were able to find ways to get things moving. And mm -hmm. for me watching from the outside, looking in, that's part of your legacy. You were a doer and you continue, as you mentioned about wanting to bring people in Lamont together. We owe you a lot of thanks. Would you agree with what I mentioned about what I believe part of your legacy will be? Yeah, you summed it up as, as well as anybody can. I haven't put a lot of energy into putting on paper, for example, in, in a couple or three very uh, good sentences, this is my legacy. I've never done that. Maybe I'll think about it and do it. I don't know. But I'm... Uh, for moving forward is I do the Buck Naked Boys newsletter uh, once a month. Goes to at least 200 addresses. And don't intend to stop doing that for a long time. I've been doing it for 25 years. So whether I can do it for another 25 or not, I don't know, but... Uh, Let's hope so. Let's hope. I'm 72 years old and uh, I'm thinking that blessed with really good health for being 72. Mm -hmm. And my New Year's resolution, you know, part of the scenery in the background, as I can see part of my treadmill in the corner of what I see on screen here, is because I know when I was running half marathons uh, a few years ago, for quite a few years, there were 70 and 80 year old guys doing it. Well, I'll probably have a better life and so on if I'm moving forward as one of those 70-year-old guys that takes his time but does finish a half marathon quite comfortably. Maybe not in the next year because, well, I can't see anybody even trying to organize a half marathon or a marathon event in the days of COVID. But very much like yourself using that turtle, that turtle idea you know, it's that slowly but surely we'll get to the end of it. You know, we just have to be patient. And I, that's what I see when um, in looking at your background and with what you've been able to accomplish. And I love the fact that you're not just resting on that, that you're continuing to do things uh, today and moving forward. And as we wrap up today's conversation, Fred, just be on behalf of so many people who are who know you from before and who are just meeting you right now, just thank you for everything. Thank you for creating that safe space. There are many 
people, many men who are deeply appreciative of everything that you helped us accomplish. So thank you, Fred. It's the greatest thing I could ever have done in my life. It's been great. Well, thank you, Fred, for being on today's episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time, please remember to be good and always text when you get home. Goodbye for now. <laughs>